We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And don't forget to take a look at their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can listen to old shows there as well. Ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, Good to morning, see you all. Scott. Good morning, Scott. Uh, Happy long weekend. Yeah, finally here. Exactly. Annuities and retirement. Yeah. Going to start off with that. Absolutely. So one of the ongoing debates that I've been having and discussions with clients as well is about just how to structure their retirement income. Mm -hmm. And, And for a couple that I met just recently who are in their 60s, the discussion about where are the markets going and concern over uh, is the stock market high? Will there be a crash? How does this affect our retirement? Mm. Um, it was really sort of forefront for them. And, and we sort of, we spent a bit of time trying to talk about and understand what are their real fears around this and around retirement. And the, the biggest thing was, you know, at, at the same time as they want to spend money, they also have that anxiety over, yeah. are we spending too much? I know that you've done a plan. I know mm. it all makes sense, but there's something in the back of my head that still gives me some spidey tingles that, you know, yeah. what if what if the stock market crashes? How does this affect our, our, long, our longevity, or if we live too long for longevity as well? And all of these issues were bubbling up. And what, what I came to realize, and, and this like so many other couples today, are retiring without a pension plan. Mm. And so for those who still have a defined benefit pension plan, and only about 10% of us have a defined benefit pension plan today, mm-hmm. and uh, and of those, 50% of those plans are close to new members. Mm-hmm. So really yeah. there's only about yeah. 5% of the current working population is participating in a defined benefit pension plan. So a defined benefit pension plan, again, just has a formula that, tells you exactly how much you're going to get based on the years of service that you've worked there and your income. Mm -hmm. So you can pretty much guarantee or or bank on that uh, in terms of then producing a lifetime income. Teachers are a common one. Uh, There are a number of public service employees that, uh, that also have the defined benefit plan. And whenever you talk to somebody with a defined benefit plan, they certainly are motivated to protect it. They don't want to lose those plans because they know it does provide a lot of peace of mind. Mm-hmm. You know that check's coming in every single yeah, month. Sure. And the example that this couple used was, he said, well, our friend, he worked at Imperial Oil. And he now has a pension for, you know, six grand a month that mm-hmm. comes in every month. There's another check. Wow. So he has no fear of spending it, sure. you know, all of it, not even thinking about saving part of it. You know, really it's not an issue. Uh, and, and there's some money. indexing for me. Worry-free money. Yeah. It's, every it month. is worry-free money. Mm-hmm. And so we began to sort of then analyze, I, I began to analyze their current in situation as they begin to look to retirement. So I'll give you a little bit of a history of who they are and what they're what they have and what their goals were. So the, this is a couple age uh, he's 65, she's 67. So and it's actually 2 sorry years. Sorry to interrupt. Older. Were yeah. these new clients? No, these oh, are okay. existing clients. Right. So Yeah, I guess but they just recently semi formally retired and now they're looking at beginning to draw money from their investments. I guess the reason I'm asking Andy is is there a certain age 
where people will come to you? Or is it all ages? Would they be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60? Because you would think people are, you know, by the time they're in their 30s, they're, they're doing this sort of thing. Do, do yeah. new clients come at different age, well, different this, demographics? This couple was 60 and 62, so it was when five they, years ago when, they, yeah. when we started working together. Because you would think most might think that's kind of late to be consulting a financial planner, but obviously still a great idea. It, uh, in their case, they had sold a business, and so now they were interested in investing those proceeds and right. then figuring out a plan to generate an income right. for retirement. Mm-hmm. So up until that point, they've been plowing all of their money into the business in general. Right. And so now this influx of cash meant, okay, we need a plan. So you get as many older clients coming in as you do younger ones. Then. I think, and, and really more so, you know, the, the real, the biggest hurdle for most people is that sort of five-year stretch before retirement right. as they begin to think about all the options and it's on their mind, they're talking to friends and really there's a lot of confusion. They're doing reading and under trying to get more understanding about it. And that's where there's a ton of work from our perspective yeah. in terms of figuring out the best options for somebody like that. But to your point, Scott, it's 45 seems to be the line in the sand where right. I, you don't get too many before the age of 45. They Not to say they wouldn't be doing yeah. something beforehand, mm-hmm. but it's kind of interesting. You know, you look back at when I got my first car, as I say, Volkswagen Beetle. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it doesn't really matter too much if it doesn't work properly. I can yeah. fix it myself. Well, when, same with money. As you get more and more money, you don't really want to, you don't want to take a chance on a mistake. It gets more complicated. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't do the, I wouldn't <clears throat> ever touch my car. I just drive it, take it to the garage yeah. now. And the same would happen with money. And I says, well, now I've got a few hundred thousand. I should really talk to a financial planner because what about this? And what about yeah. that? And there's a lot more questions that come up as you have more money. So I kind of look at, and not to say people under 45 yeah. are, are unavailable. There's the exception to the rule, but to the most part, definitely I, we do see more people 50 plus. Mm. Okay. Okay. Uh, so this couple, 65 and 67, their net worth was $2 million. And, um, and so of that, uh, 1.2 million was in non-registered investments. 130,000 uh, was TFSA, 65,000 each. And they and had $100,000 that had just recently been converted to a RIF that was in her name. So, and the house was worth 570,000 and they have no debts. So of that $1.2 million, so that was from the sale of the business, um, we, as we under, try to understand each of their risk tolerance, she was very conservative mm-hmm. and he was leaning towards more aggressive. So we ended up with actually three pools of money for their retirement. One, 500,000 was a moderate aggressive portfolio and it's been averaging about 8%. 500,000 was a moderate conservative portfolio averaging about 5%. And 200,000 was a very conservative portfolio averaging about 3%. So there was sort of three pots of money. And, um, as they begin to look at, in general, we were talking about what would a 3% withdrawal figure look like. So 1.2 million, taking out 3,000 a month, 36,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was sort of the, the thought process. In addition to that, she was taking $1,000 uh, a month from her RIF. And she was also collecting, had just started taking CPP. So she's 67 now. And she has her old age security, 600 a month and also the investment income of about $1,500. He was still working part-time, just 18,000 a year, so 1,500 a month, hadn't started taking his Canada pension plan yet. Mm -hmm. And he had the investment income of 1,500 a a month, 18,000 a year, and again, old age security of 600 a month. So 
When we were looking at the other objectives that they had was they have three children, which are now all married and, mm-hmm. um, and some grandchildren as well. And they wanted to think, what can we leave in terms of an estate? That's an important, uh, important factor in terms of our goals. And if, if I know we have two million now, but is it possible we'd be willing to live more modestly? We'd like to give a million dollars to each of our kids. So three wow. million dollars was the actual objective. Wow, nice. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. do you have their phone number? Yeah, <laughs> right. adoption papers are ready, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a million dollars in today's dollars. When they're ninety, oh, you know, twenty-five uh, years from now, it won't okay. be worth quite Always as much. Always a catch. So. We we started to talk then about, you know, the last five years have been pretty darn good in terms of an investment uh, performance, mm-hmm. et cetera. But we wanted to, I wanted to explain to them and review what would happen in case of a 20% market correction and right. what would that mean? Mm-hmm. And as that sort of begin to digest the changes in terms of their portfolio, you could tell that there was certainly some anxiety from her perspective because, mm-hmm. you know, 20% of well, 1 million, that's $200,000 yeah. yeah. is, I don't know, is can we still keep taking income? Like I'm, that makes me very nervous. And so one of the discussions we ended up moving towards is something about creating your own kind of pension plan, Mm -hmm. and that would be in the form of an annuity. And so what an annuity does is it basically transfers all of the investment risk from you personally Mm -hmm. to an insurance company. Right. And I think annuities have sort of had a bad rap, but the irony is, is that everybody loves their defined benefit pension plan, but for some reason they hate annuities. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because, you know, you think, well, I'm giving money to this big insurance company. There's got to be a catch in this somewhere. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not, I don't really trust them. And, And I think that's a big part of it. But really, a company was putting money on your behalf. It was your money on your behalf into an annuity, mm-hmm. which is a pension. In the pensions, yeah. That's it's right. Just, it's the same thing. But now you just don't see it. It doesn't feel like your money when the company's putting it in there. That's mm-hmm. right. And mm-hmm. and so we have to sort of reframe that a bit in terms of the thought process. So one of the uh, one of the um, there's some great research and material done by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Moshe Molevsky, and he is a professor at the Schulich Business of School. He's written over 13 books on how to sort of annuitize or, or pensionize your retirement. And he talks about the level of enjoyment that people have when they don't have all this uh, fear about mm. market volatility, sure. when they have that guaranteed check coming in every single month, and how much more free they are to spend the money, and how much more relaxed they are or less concerned about market mm. volatility as well. So we looked at, and, and his rules of thumb that we would apply to this are roughly 30% of your retirement capital should be considered for an annuity at age 65. And then he further talks about at age 75, 10 years later, taking another 20 to 30% of your retirement capital to buy another annuity. Now, the older you are, the higher your payout. Right. And then there's other features around your annuity that you're going to want to consider. And in this case, when I began to talk about it with this couple, it was about having a joint survivor annuity, meaning that whatever they were going to get every month, if one of them dies, the exact same amount continues on to yeah. the surviving spouse for as long as they live. And um, and so we looked at their $1.2 million and we took that sort of middle tier. There's 500000 in that moderate conservative investment, which was her pool of money in general, like that mm-hmm. from a thought process. And then we said, well, if we took 30% of that, roughly say 400000 and we went out to look for an annuity for the a joint annuity for the two of you, 
And you can tack on a guaranteed period, which is basically like a a little insurance rider saying, if we died early, Mm -hmm. we're going to get a certain amount back from that 400 grand. So you can have a five-year guarantee, a 10-year guarantee. Is that the disadvantage? The disadvantage is you get less less money every month. Right. So you're adding in that little insurance policy. You pay for it by getting less every month on Mm -hmm. your annuity. Just a trade-off. Less risk to you means also less money. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, one quote that we did, and this one was through uh, Canada Life, and based on $400,000 with a five-year guarantee, so a very low level of guarantee, would generate uh, a monthly payment of $1,800 mm-hmm. every month, guaranteed for life for both lives for as long as they live. Now, this is non-registered money. This is not coming from an RSP. It was cash from the sale of the business. And um, so it's a non-registered annuity, and we're going to do something called prescribe it. And prescribing does the, has a benefit of spreading out the taxation of it over your perceived lifetime or your, I guess, your um, actuarial lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so the taxable portion was only about uh, 450 a month. So big part of it tax-free. Mm-hmm. Big, some a little part of it taxable, yeah. and so I'm going to run through a bit of the numbers, tell you how that worked out in terms of their cash flow and also of their estate as well. We are planning your financial future, talking about annuities and retirement. Don Fox and Andy Lister are here from Investors Group Financial Services Inc. Call now nine zero five five two nine seventy one sixty five. Leave a message; they'll return your call. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at their website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're talking about annuities and retirement. So I wanted to talk a little bit then about cash flow. So now they've got this $1,800 annuity payment coming in for the rest of their lives. And uh, what it actually meant, it's about 20, a little over 20000 a year after tax. And um, what it really meant was that they had about $10,000 more income per year. So now it's stress-free income. And what it when we looked at their fixed costs versus their fund costs, their fixed costs were about 65000 And um, looking forward, once he stops working, et cetera, the income from their Canada pension plan, the income from their old age security, and the income from the annuity totaled about $65,000. So what's comforting about that is they know if they spent everything else, you know, over the next 20 years, that they would still have enough guaranteed income for life to cover all of their fixed costs. Mm -hmm. And generally, some of your fixed costs go down over time, but this also includes inflation adjustments, et cetera. So number one was they had uh, more income to spend now. They had guaranteed income for life for both of them to cover all of their fixed costs for their later years if, if they win the longevity lottery. And finally, the estate consideration. When I looked at their current situation, so if they just stuck to what they were doing, their estate at age 90 after taxes was going to be about $4.5 million. So they would have enough to give a million dollars to each kid. There was, there, yeah. In fact, they overshot the, yeah. based on what they've been spending. But even by giving up 400000 today... The new estate at the end of uh, at age ninety was four million and seventy three thousand, a difference of about three hundred and ninety thousand. So it, they still had enough to give a million dollars to mm-hmm. each of their children at uh, at death, um, and in fact, then create a secure income stream with a lot less stress and no worry about 
financial crisis yeah. or stock market volatility. So I think it's it's something again that is worth revisiting. People have been shying away from this. Again, they you know the interest rates are too low, or you know how old do you have to be, or I don't want to lose that money as far as part of my part of my estate. These are all the things that. So is that the disadvantage? Is that you're taking this money out of your estate and you're plopping it into something else that you don't have control over? That's right. Yeah. There's no liquidity to this, right? right. So once you've handed it over to an insurance there. company, they're going to guarantee you income for life, but you can't come back and say, "Oh, I need a hundred grand because I right. want to buy a place in right. you know, Arizona." Or and <clears> if you <throat> pass away. If you pass away beyond the guarantee period, right. and then, then that's it. It ends. Okay. But that's no different than your and teacher's pension or anybody else's pension, right? right? That's exactly the same as a normal pension. Right. Yeah. But, but again, and as we I said think to them, it's differently though. It's, it's like our own money. What about my estate? Where's this money yeah. going to go? Yeah, nobody asks those questions with a pension. They all are okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they've deposited yeah. a million dollars into their teacher's pension. Yeah. <laughs> where's my million dollars? <laughs> where's yeah. my million dollars yeah. when I die? Yeah. No, they don't ask that. Because, you know, you look at the average teachers, around 11, 12% of their pay goes into a pension. Right, yeah. So they're putting a lot of money into this. A lot of money, this. yeah. And there's never that that kind of discussion yeah. about, well, if we both die, where's this money go? Yeah. Oh, I'm opting out of this thing. I don't think this is a good deal. They all love their pension. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's funny when we have to actually write a check for 400000 in Andy's case, well, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> That's right. You know, yeah. a little different. Yeah. So. Makes sense. But talk about stress. You know, I know this is a stress testing retirement. Andy's talking about one way to lower stress is annuities. What about the stress testing for those trying to get a mortgage these days? Yeah. I uh, had a chance to speak with Bill Kelly uh, uh, back on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they increased the stress test a little bit. Yeah. Um, they moved the rate, the stress test rate now for to qualify for a mortgage is uh, based on their five-year rate, the government five-year rate, which is 5.34%. Now, interesting enough... I know anybody out there probably could get a mortgage for a five-year mortgage around 5.34%. Sorry, 3.34%, 2% less. But this is all part of that idea of that they want to have some wiggle room for people in case interest rates rise. But what is it? How is it affecting things? And there was definitely a run-up in real estate um, transfers and and selling and buying back in December Mm -hmm. because they knew the stress test was happening January 1st. And we have noticed there has been decline in sales. Yeah. Okay. Which I think I think April's numbers just came out, and it's the lowest in seven years. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's we're at a low point right now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what? Um, probably a good thing. Yeah. You know, just looking at. You know, maybe selfishly for my own kids, mm-hmm. I, they'll never mm-hmm. own a house if they keep going up by thirty yeah. percent a year. Yeah. The prices. Yeah. But I look. I looked at the average. Let's say you look at a situation. Um, a new buyer is looking at a market. They've been great savers. And back in December, they said, okay, we can look at an $800,000 house. We have $200,000 down payment, and we can go take on a $600,000 mortgage based on the rates at that time. And so they, no problem at all. Well, January 1st, based on the 5.34% rate, all of a sudden, oh, by the way, their, their, their payment was gonna be $2,954 a month. And that's what they could afford, Right. okay? Well, now they would only qualify based on this fictitious rate. Mm -hmm. Nobody's actually paying this Mm 5.34, but the stress test rate, they can only afford a $488,000 mortgage now, not a $600,000 mortgage. So therefore they can only buy a $688,000 house rather than an $800,000 house. Mm -hmm. Big difference, you know, big difference. And I can see, you know, the stress, if you will, of of going into the market. In fact, I talked to somebody um, recently and they said, well, the thoughts of me buying a house right now are, are just off the table. Mm-hmm. I could 
barely afford it in December, and now I can't at all. Yeah. I can't even get it in the market. And and so for the effect of this is for the first time buyer, it they'll get less house. So they have to go and look at different areas of the yeah. city. Um, I, <clears throat> I can't buy a, a, a detached house, has to be you know a townhouse or a condo. Mm-hmm. So they're getting less house. Or they have to move to a different city. Yeah, yeah I'm gonna go try out Brantford. Mm-hmm. But now their their lifestyle's not as good. They have yeah. a longer drive. Or thirdly, I guess there's no house at all. Maybe I'll just stick to renting. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a, an interesting camp camp of people doing that uh, because I, I recently talked to a couple and they're renting their house. They're, they're renting a, almost a million dollar home for about 2,500 a month. Yeah, yeah. The property taxes, you know, they're losing money. Whoever owns this house is losing money. Yeah. And this is in a very nice place in Burlington. Um, and I talked to them about this and I said, oh yeah, there's a whole lot of rentals in this area. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of leveraging self or borrowing for investments, because everybody was getting pretty greedy in the whole upswing of the real estate market. Mm-hmm. Not only is it, you know, they have their own house, but I'm going to go buy another million dollar house and rent it out. Yeah. And now they're losing, currently with the today's interest rates, they're losing about $1,000 a month. Well, what's going to happen if interest rates tick up a bit more for those people? Mm-hmm. And now those landlords are going to, they may be underwater too much themselves where they can't afford to keep it. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that kind of happened in 1990, um, about 1990, 91 where housing doubled in about three years from 85 to 90. And all of a sudden, everybody was buying real estate like crazy and renting it out like crazy, very similar to today. And then all of a sudden, interest rates started to rise. The market fell. And there was four straight negative years in the early 90s in real estate. Mm -hmm. Nothing major, like an 8% drop followed by a 6% drop. But the point is, the allure of renting, uh, buying a house for investment purposes and watching the price go down isn't as sexy, okay? Ooh, no. <laughs> <laughs> They're now borrowing money. They're losing money every month on the rent, yeah. and the property value is going down. Yeah. So the, so this is also what's going to happen. You're going to see some of these landlords perhaps get out of the market too. And these are all downward pressures for the housing prices, mm-hmm. which, again, um, at, the, at the end of the day, you, it may not be a terrible thing. Um, I know people looking to sell house and, and live on the proceeds. That's a different story. But for the average person just trying to get a house, nobody wants to see their house go up by 30%. No. Because they'll just never be able to afford one. So the other part with the, this effect is on renewals. They, the stress test, how does it affect when your mortgage comes up for renewal? Yeah. And that was a good question. Actually, I didn't know. I had to check this out. I just assumed when it renewed, well, you already got a house. So yeah. you don't have to get checked out on this anymore. Um, you can, everybody can take a big sigh of relief on this. You will not get stress test if you stay with the same institution you're with. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. But that also gives the, the kind that's, of the, That's not fair. Right. Mm. <laughs> okay. It takes all of a sudden your, that, that bank or institution you have, and this is for the banks, by the way. Boy, this, is it ever. They all of a sudden say, well, maybe I won't give them the great rate anymore because mm. they really can't they go can't across move. the street. Yeah. They can't, this is a little stickier. We don't have to be quite as competitive anymore because they probably wouldn't qualify for a mortgage at, say, a different institution. Mm-hmm. This is only for the big banks. But um, having said that, I did check with the credit unions, and they're also pretty much going with the stress test now too, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't right on top. It wasn't really aimed at them, mm-hmm. but they think it's probably not a bad idea. And I know the mortgage brokers or the alternative lending they're getting more business at this. Mm-hmm. But again, sometimes they're charging more too. Mm-hmm. So it may not be the best deal for the consumer. That being said, if you do not um, really, if the stress test does not affect you, then 
you can shop around all day long. Mm-hmm. You're actually, you know, got right, a, right. you're like, I got a gold feather in your cap yeah, here and yeah. you're like gold to the bank mm-hmm. and they don't want to lose you. Mm-hmm. And cause they, the, the stress test doesn't affect you. You'd qualify if you had the stress test right. done. Right. And therefore you go in again, end of the day, you want to shop around. So it doesn't mean that you're necessarily paying those rates. You just have to be able to qualify at those rates. Correct. Right. Correct. So you could still say qualify at a five whatever, but get a three something. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, uh, I know TD was first off the mark increasing their five-year rate. Yeah. Well, it was really kind of fictitious because even though they increased it, nobody was paying that rate anyway. Yeah. So you look at the posted rate mm. and it's over 5% now. Yeah. And yet, you know, they're, they're just as competitive as anybody else giving three and a half or 3.4 or 3.29, whatever they're giving, because mm. they want those good customers. Okay, they want those good, because they're in the business to lend money. Sure. And that's how they make money. Okay, so it it is interesting that, you know, the stress test doesn't apply on renewals. I'm glad it doesn't, mm-hmm. because you could imagine mm-hmm. that would have a domino effect for yeah. those ones that are barely qualified the first time. They're yeah. not going to qualify in renewal. Yeah. What if they only got a one-year renewal? Yeah, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but it does leave them um, pretty much, you may have to be loyal to that institution right. if you don't qualify for the stress test. Right. Okay. So just for those listeners, uh, you know, think about that. Now, what I am finding is maybe you need a bigger down payment now to get the house, to get into the housing market. Yeah. And this is causing a bit of a domino effect on parents helping out. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I had this interesting conversation with a client in the past week where he was able, he had to basically, there's no way his daughter was going to be able to get a house. She, she would have a year ago, but she won't now. Right. And therefore she wanted a condo. And so he's basically taken it upon himself either to co-sign, which is really him, or let be, yeah. he's, the, he's <clears> now <throat> really the one in debt because it goes against his, line, his, uh, you know, his whole debt situation. Right. So, or he lends the money out of his line of credit or some, some type of help. So we are getting that parents, or actually parents are getting more involved with the kids' mortgages than I've ever seen. Um, partly because I think they thought, well, well, kids will never get into a house if we don't get them a house now because they're going up so quickly. So really all they're doing mm. is giving them their inheritance earlier. Yes. Is, and I, is that accurate? Uh, yes. Um, but it's also, um, forcing them to work longer. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting in this particular situation, the person said, well, I'm going to retire in four years. Well, that's great. Yeah. Perfect. Good for you. Uh, I'm also lending money to my daughter. What if she stops paying you? What if she loses her job? You are now the lender. Yeah. Can you afford that payment yourself? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I never thought of that. And you, what, are you going to sell the place behind, you know, uh, yeah. while she's still in it? Yeah. Tell her she's <laughs> got to move back home? Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what you don't did. want her back home. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Buy a nice tent? There's, yeah. e- there's even, I've seen um, advertisement for seminars recently um, by mortgage companies talking about how your parents can use a reverse mortgage oh, wow. to produce a lump yeah, sum yeah. that can then help you achieve your down payment. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure it's a great idea. I'm not sure it's a bad idea, but I, it, it really probably would be, again, it's something you have to be older to be able to do this. So at least 65 or 70 to think about a reverse mortgage in general. And so, well-prepared. And well-prepared. And now, you know, the, I guess if your home's worth a million dollars and you're planning to stay there for 30 years and you want to take out a hundred grand as a reverse mortgage without any payments, 
maybe that's an option, but it's something I think you just have to make sure you've done your research. Yeah, on run this. the numbers, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm actually in full favor of this stress test because interest rates are rising and, you know, the banks really don't want to, you know, have people throw their keys back at them and take ownership of their house. They're in the business of lending and they want to make a bit of a profit. And if interest rates did go up by a certain percentage, they don't want the person to foreclose on the mortgage. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you look at the prime rate, the prime lending rate, it has gone up. It's gone up about 0.75 since July of last year. Mm -hmm. So if you had a line of credit at prime, you could have got 2.7%, not even a year ago, and now you're paying 3.45. Most people aren't getting the prime rate, they're getting prime plus a half. But regardless, there's been an increase of three quarters of 1% on, on the lending rate at prime. Now, at the other end of the scale, the five-year bond rate right now has gone up to 2.25%. Now, what that means is the government five-year bond, so the government is needing money. So they are, you are lending money to the government and they're going to pay you 2.25% for five years. Not a bad rate. Well, a year ago, it was only 0.9. Hmm. It has gone up 1.35% in one year. And so what happens with this bond rate, the banks often borrow the money from the government at 2.25 and they lend it in mortgages and make the difference. Mm. Well, if the bond rate goes up, then the mortgage rates are going to go up. Yeah. So we're seeing this upswing and I am totally agreement the stress test is, is there for a, a reason because we don't want situations such as what we saw in the States going back to 08 where people just couldn't afford their house. Mm -hmm. Now, I know they were extreme. They weren't, they were charging zero interest for the first two years and all of a sudden they they had to start paying something on it. But at the same token, you know, if the people are, if the buyer is not being prepared for an increase in rates, then somebody, and the banks were no help here. They're qualifying people for oh, yeah. million dollar mortgages yeah. and really right to the skin of their teeth of what debt they could mm -hmm. um, afford. Mm -hmm. And based on the lowest rate possible, and they even lowered the five-year rate because the government said, well, you we have to base it on the five-year rate. Well, the banks just lowered the five-year rate. Yeah. So then more, just everybody qualified. So it also did add fuel to the fire in terms of the real estate market. So this is where government is actually a good thing, where they're almost like being big brother and saying, okay, there is a stress test, qualify for this just to give you some wiggle room. <laughs> just in case gas prices go up 20 cents a liter, you can afford it. Yeah, okay. Really. And this is all about good financial planning to make sure you you have some wiggle room in your portfolio. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Take a peek at the website, andyanddon.com. That's all one word, andyanddon.com. As well, give them a call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. We're talking about good debt versus bad debt. Not, yes. all, not all debt is bad. No, no, not mm. all debt is bad. And I know, you know, our last segment, we were talking about the, you know, mortgage rates and, you know, they're going up. Mm -hmm. And this is a way that perhaps you can have your mortgage rate go down and use the tax system to your advantage. And so let's just say, you know, you're sitting there and you got a $300,000 mortgage and you're part of, a, say, a, st a company stock plan and you got this $300,000 in company stock. And so this is a great deal. You're happy with your life. You know, um, they, quite often you can't get a, a 
you're not allowed to get to that $300,000 stock plan until you either retire or there's a vesting period. So you can't touch it anyway. But you're stuck with this mortgage, but you feel pretty good. You got this investment rising, hopefully, and you got this little mortgage that's little these days at 300000 Well, let's just say the company made a mistake and cashed out your money and threw it in your bank account and sold the stock. And now you have a few options. What would you do? You now have the money. And now, so you got money in your bank account, 300000 and you got this mortgage of 300000 Well, number one is you could just get it back the way it was. Said, you know what? I'm going to go buy my company stock back again and just put my life just the way it was. Mm -hmm. And that's an option. Number two is you could just, you could pay off your mortgage and you know, you'd be down debt free. Mm -hmm. You've got $300,000 and boom, mortgage is paid off. Yeah. And you now have $1,500 every month because you used to be paying 1500 a month on this mortgage payment. And I think, well, wow, I got this 1500, this is great. Big screen TV. Yeah. Well, <laughs> every and, month. <laughs> and that's kind of what I was worried about. Thanks Andy for bringing it up. It, in a perfect world say, oh, I'll put this 1500 towards my RSP room that I have tons of or my TFSA. But reality, it kind of creeps into people's lifestyle. It will go into maybe a new car mm. or, a visa, or, a, or, a, or a nice vacation or a big screen TV. Um, it's it's like found money. Mm -hmm. And it's funny when you don't have that payment to a mortgage, a lender, you don't quite have the discipline quite often. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now the third way would be to pay off that mortgage, do exactly what I just said, but now reborrow that 300,000 and put it back into the investment. Mm -hmm. Now you could put it hundred percent into that stock that you just was put sold. Now, if you do that, you have to wait 30 days. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, the interest when you borrow for investment purposes is tax deductible. So when you had this, when you're borrowing for a house, that's a mortgage, but now you've paid off your mortgage, you now are taking out a loan for 300,000. It can still be called a mortgage per se, but you're buying stocks with it. Now, the option is buy the exact same stock. I would not recommend that because having $300,000 in one stock no. is not a good way to do things. I would recommend a diversified portfolio spread around the world with emerging markets, international investments, US and Canada, spread it right around. And now you still have basically the situation you had before. You have your $300,000 debt, just like you did when you started, and you got your investments. Everything's identical, except now the interest is tax deductible. So you're making that payment of 1500 a month, some of that goes against principal. So 625 of that goes against principal, but 875 goes is, is pure interest mm -hmm. at three and a half percent. So you end up with about $10,500 of interest per year, of which is 100% tax deductible. So you could save you, if you're in the, say, a high tax rate, 50%, you're going to get back a refund of $5,250 because of how you structured your debt. Mm -hmm. Okay, same debt, everything's the same, except now you borrowed for the investment. So I, I, create, I created a situation. Let's say, you know, because you, you are paying off the house slowly or mm -hmm. paying off this mortgage slowly, that over a 10 year period of time, it wouldn't be 10,500 of interest per year. Um, over the whole 10 years, it would average about $9,000 of interest a year. Because you slowly pay off the principal. Right. So you don't have quite as much interest as, as you start. So assuming it's 9,000 interest on average, you're gonna get a $4,500 tax refund. So what do you do with that? Well, this is the nice thing now. Now you got a game plan. This is not like adding to your income every year, 1,500 a month, where it can slowly whittle away. You're gonna get this lump sum check 
as in terms of a tax refund, why don't you take that $4,500, pluck that right into your RSP, okay? And you're going to get a tax refund of $2,250 from that because of the RSP. And you've got, you've got a couple of kids. And you say, okay, I want to use that money to go into their education plan. All this is done simply because you made your, your interest tax deductible. Mm-hmm. So now $4,500 goes towards the RSP. $2,250 ends up going into the kid's education plan, which the government throws in a $450 grant, mm-hmm. which is also a 20% bonus you're getting. So t- let's fast forward 10 years. 10 years later, your, 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 paid, your, your debt is down to about 200000 mm-hmm. No different than it would have been had, you, had this never happened. You slowly would have paid off your, your, your mortgage. But now doing it this way, you now have about $57,000 in your RSP. And you've got $34,000 in your kid's education plan. You've now have, in just 10 years, $90,000 sitting there that you wouldn't have had 10 years simply because the, the interest is now tax deductible. You are left in the exact same situation, but you're letting the tax system work for you rather than against you. And you fast forward that till, let's say, 15 years later till you retire, you end up without even adding another penny to your RSP. 118,000 more in your RSP. So it's amazing how if with a proper financial plan, and this is just a recent occurrence. I had this happen to a few people in this last few weeks where they had options to get to their, their company stock plan. We, we rejigged everything and we, t- we created a financial plan simply making your interest tax deductible. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Check out the website, andyanddon.com, or call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now, leave a message at 905-529-7165. And as well, take a peek at the website. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Just go to andyanddon.com. We're talking about withholding tax tips. Yeah, so for all of my retirees or almost retirees, one of the sources of confusion and often talk around the uh, the card table or the dinner table with friends or co- over cocktails is how RRSPs are such a ripoff. Because mm-hmm. whenever I take money out, I have to pay all this tax. Yeah, <laughs> and and so. Uh, the, the the one conversation I had this past week with clients said, you yeah, know, we were sitting with a bunch of friends and, and there was one, my one friend who I think is a pretty smart guy was complaining about his withholding tax on an RSP withdrawal. And, and I, we had the conversation, I had to remind him, well, by the way, you never paid tax when that money first went in. So you have to pay it when it comes out. And so, I mean, it kind of sunk in, but for some reason, uh, RSPs are getting a bad rap because everybody thinks and focuses on the tax they have to pay as they begin to take them out. They forgot but, about the tax they said years ago. But the name of the game, right, is always the same. You want to put money into it when you're in a high tax bracket and you want to take it out when you're in a low tax bracket. So one question then that we get is, as people think about their retirement and income planning is, well, why? Do, you know, what is the RIF and how do RSP versus RIF why do I need a RIF and, and really what is the difference? And the first thing that you need to know about RSP versus RIF is whatever investments you have in your RSP, the exact same investments can be in your RIF. So you don't need to change your investments, you're just simply changing the name. But when you change the name uh, to RIF, 
you now are required to take out a certain amount each year. So that is the big difference. So really riffs are a, are really a great tool for creating a monthly income. Because if you just took a withdrawal from your RRSP every month, say cash in a thousand, cash in a thousand, technically what would happen is the withholding tax on your RSP is uh, you know ten percent under five grand, and then twenty percent on five to fifteen thousand, and then thirty percent if your total withdrawal is over fifteen thousand for the year. So I'm in the world where I don't want people to get big refunds mm-hmm. when they file their tax returns. So I want to minimize the amount of tax that can be withheld to sort of closely resemble how much you would owe for the year. Mm-hmm. I don't mind you writing a little check at the end of the year, but I don't. you don't need to be getting a big check coming back to you. Better to have that money in your hands. So the RIF gives you a little bit of flexibility. And I'll give you an example. So a client who is 71 now has to take all their RSP and convert it to a RIF. And they're wondering, how do I structure my payout? In this case, we'll take do an example where that person's spouse is younger and age 65. So now you have a choice. I can base my payout on my, cur- on my age, 71, or I can base it on my younger spouse's age at 65. And there'll be different reasons for why you might pick one or the other. But generally, if you go with the younger spouse, that reduces the minimum requirement payout every year. So there's a formula. And there's a, the formula, basically, you can Google that and find it anywhere. But at age 65, the minimum payout is 4%. So if you have $100,000 in your RSP, you've now put it into a RIF, you've based your minimum payout on your younger spouse at age 65, that you must take out 4%. So you must take out four grand. Mm-hmm. So that's the minimum. But let's say, really, you know, you need, you want 10 grand. If you take out 10 grand, there is no requirement on that first 4000 to withhold any tax. So that 4 grand, the minimum payment, zero tax withheld. Mm-hmm. On the remaining 6000, it's going to be 20%, right? Over 5 grand. So 1200 bucks. So you're going to get 10,000 out of your RIF. You're only going to pay 1200 bucks of tax, 12%. If you did that same that same withdrawal from an RSP, it would be a 20% flat across the top. So you'd pay 2000 So you've paid $800 more in tax. So your financial planner will be able to tell you if that's going to be too much or, or not enough. So um, when I look at it, I try and figure out what is the average tax rate going to be and let's dictate how much tax is withheld to match your average tax rate. That way you don't have to pay at the end and you don't get much of a refund. So basically RIFs give you a lot more flexibility in terms of the amount of tax that's going to be withheld. You are allowed to withhold tax on the minimum payment, but it's not a mandatory. Mm -hmm. So you can increase your RIF withholding tax anytime you want. And so you know, I think the concept should also be, and we always talk about this when you're making withdrawals from your RIF, is don't just take the minimum because often what that's doing is letting your RIF continue to grow and become larger or or actually extend how long it's going to be around. And the risk of that is that when you die, a larger amount is going to be included in your final return, your estate return, and subject to a high rate of tax. Mm-hmm. Better remember the deal, put it in when you're in a high rate, take it out at a low rate. Mm-hmm. And if you don't focus on that, that's key. So I talk about you want to really tweak your withdrawal right up until the next tax bracket. 
So keep yourself in as low a tax bracket as possible, but tweak your withdrawal so that by the end of the year, you've come in just below that next tax threshold Mm -hmm. so that you're minimizing the overall tax you're paying on your RIF withdrawals. So it's a key, uh, it's a key strategy. RIFs are a great tool and, uh, but don't be, don't be upset about paying some tax. Remember you didn't pay any tax on this money to start with. And now it's just a function of paying as little tax on the way out as possible. Financial planning. Absolutely. That's what we're doing. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And as well, don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old archive shows as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Again, Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., 905-529-7165, and the website is andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Enjoy the long weekend, everybody. Have a great week.